Hi, my name is Rory Cormack. I'm a professor at the University of Nottingham in the UK. I'm here today with Mike Poznanski from the Naval War College. Hi, Mike. Do you want to uh, kick off with your caveat? Sure. Yeah, Rory, uh, great to be with you. And I should just mention that these views today are my own and don't represent uh, those of the US government, Department of Defense or the Naval War College. So with that caveat aside, Rory, back over to you. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so your, your latest article, Mike, argues that leaders are more likely to go covert when they are seeking to change a regime. Um, why, 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 why is that? What's the, what's the lure for covertness when they're trying to depose rather than prop up a regime? Yeah, generally speaking, leaders find covert action attractive for a variety of reasons. So foreign meddling in other countries, whether to pursue regime change or regime rescue, as I call it, to save a regime, it can stir up nationalist sentiment. It can lead to escalation with rivals who might be allied with the target. It can cause reputational damage for countries who are violating international legal obligations and things like that. So the appeal of covert action and plausible deniability is pretty straightforward. And the, the explanation for why leaders are more likely to go covert when overthrowing regimes as opposed to saving them is essentially their tolerance for risk. And let me just be very brief here. I essentially mean that leaders will accept greater risk to save regimes and prevent losses and therefore to go overt than they will to do something like regime change, which is all about improving their station. But one thing I'm wondering there is to have enough force, if you like, to be able to depose the regime. Can it really be that secret? I mean, are you not overplaying the, the plausible deniability of this stuff? Can they, can they really do it in a way that no one actually knows it's them? Yeah, this is obviously you're hitting on like one of the fundamental trade-offs of, of covert action, which is that the smaller it is, the more likely leaders are to attain deniability, but also the less effective it's going to be. And you see all the time, I mean, I know you know really well in the UK context, but in the, in the US context also, leaders are constantly wrestling with this trade-off between size and secrecy. And so it's definitely the case, I think, in a lot of regime change efforts that are done covertly that leaders are often wrestling with how big can we make this thing before we're, we lose all deniability that's my sense because there's a ceiling isn't that secrecy has a has a ceiling but at the same time what about the the interplay between the overt and the covert because often as scholars we treat it as a choice you know states either act overtly or covertly but surely that's a bit of an oversimplification yeah, definitely. And I think in the covert context, some of the most interesting work, including your own on the on these blurry lines of deniability or implausible deniability is really interesting. And I think this idea of open secrets um, can have a lot of value. I know Austin Carson's written a little bit about this as well in terms of kind of safeguarding your reputation and signaling resolve and having this kind of murky uh, connection between what you're actually doing and what you're not doing. I think the best example I love about this is like little green men in Ukraine when Russia deployed these kind of quasi-official troops uh, into Ukraine at the early start of the crisis there. Um, and it was clear to everybody that Russia was involved, but this kind of veneer of deniability allowed both Russia and I imagine the West to kind of manage escalation and expectations. So we have this um, open secrecy, veneer of deniability, as you say, but then at the same time, we have the, the covert action working simultaneously with the overt action. It's not always a, chain, a case of, of either or, is it? When we think about some of the famous covert Cold War actions, regime changes, we kind of forget, because we're so interested in the CIA's hidden hand, we forget that often these took place against, um, alongside a backdrop of 
uh, economic sanctions, diplom diplomacy, military threats. So we see the overt and the covert almost working together, do we not? Absolutely. And I, I was thinking, you know, another good example of implausible deniability would be, you know, which is timely why I'm mentioning it, U.S. support for the Mujahideen in the 1980s and providing Stinger missiles, which was very overt, but also this hybrid you mentioned, again, with Afghanistan, you know, first U.S. personnel into Afghanistan was actually the CIA working with the Northern Alliance alongside what eventually became obviously a very overt military operation. So this blending of the two, uh, in addition to overt military, but also all of the overt tools you mentioned, like sanctions and diplomacy, really interesting. And, and same thing in Vietnam, while I'm thinking about it, that happened there as well. And so you just get these really interesting hybrids where leaders are mixing and matching the tools and the objectives, depending on kind of what, what they think about in terms of risk and benefits and things like that. So you give, you give some great examples there. And obviously some of these uh, debates are, are ongoing today. What, what, what was the, what's the main policy takeaway for, for, for practitioners thinking about these things at the moment? Yeah, the, the main policy implication I think that comes out of the article is both how to avoid our own cognitive biases when thinking about the risks and rewards of different interventions, and also when our rivals are likely to intervene openly and incur lots of risk versus secretly. And this played out, I think, in the US-Russia context in Syria. It could play out in the US-China uh, context and competition there in terms of when leaders think about threats to the status quo versus improving it and, and what kinds of risks they're willing to take and when we should expect covert action and secrecy. So with the Syria example, uh, obviously, Obama went in covertly, but was he really trying to change the regime? Yeah, this is a great question. I think, you know, at the end of the day, the Obama administration was providing support to uh, to rebels and, and trying to avoid uh, some risks. So interesting. Lots of stuff to watch for sure.